Last week, we wrapped up our summer sermon series on misquoted. And today, as we head into the last long weekend of, uh, of the summer, we're going to start a brand new series on courageous community. But it's not just what happens in this room. It's not just what happens in our homes. We want to be a community that loves to go and tell the world about Jesus and also invite them to come and see the good news. So I encourage you, who are you praying for? Coworkers, family members, neighbors, classmates to take part in Alpha and experience the life-changing good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our summer series. But as we look forward to fall and hopefully past um, the big bulk of COVID, that we would once again re-engage in courageous community, that we would be a group of people so committed to the gospel, so committed to Jesus, so committed to one another, that whenever somebody walks through these doors, they would feel like they've just been welcomed home. So God, I pray that my words would fall down and that your Holy Spirit would speak to everyone in what we need to hear this morning so that you would be glorified and our church would grow stronger. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All of us want a place to belong. In a perfect world, we would feel as though we belong wherever we find ourselves. We would go to work and have a supportive workplace. We would be at school and have our friends there. We would have sports and social clubs in which we know we can just be ourselves. We want our homes to be our sanctuary and our churches to be special and life-giving. We want that place to belong. But what does it take to feel like we have the sense of belonging? What makes our little circles of communities soul-restoring and life-giving? What does it mean to be a courageous community? This isn't just a question for us as followers of Jesus. It's at the heart and soul of what it means to be human. We strive for relationships. We want to be vulnerable and real and genuine. We want to laugh together, cry together, celebrate together. We have our group of friends. Do we have a group of friends that we can be real with, that we can be vulnerable with, and that we can share the deep and dark longings and hurts in our hearts so that we might experience community and healing? Who do you go to when that weight of loneliness feels too much to bear? Who do you talk to when you feel like your marriage is falling apart and you don't know what to do next? Who are you in conversation with when it feels like this mental illness is too much to do on your own? When you've been looking for a job for six months, for 12 months, for 18 months, and nothing is coming? When you look at your friendship group, do you ask yourself, how will my friends feel if they really knew what was going on in my life? About 10 years ago, I was in one of those rather dark places, and it doesn't matter that I was a lead pastor at the time or that I was a spiritual leader for a group of people. It doesn't make me immune. And so I called up two of my closest friends here in the city, and I said, we need to meet. Breakfast is on me, but so is the conversation. And so we met at a local breakfast place, and we talked a little bit, and I just poured out my heart. I said, here's the good, here's the bad, here's the ugly. This is the real me. And my friends loved me, and they cared for me. They asked me great questions and they gave me the support I needed. And then maybe two minutes into this message, it might be the most life-changing thing you hear. One of them looked at me and said, what do you need from us right now? All of this together makes the perfect time for us to revisit this idea of courageous community. We've been isolated from one another for 18 months. The church itself had their doors closed. We weren't allowed to see friends and family. It's been really difficult. Who are we turning to? 
And what does it mean as we re-engage in community? I know I was talking with somebody and they said, Dave, I don't even know how to talk to people anymore. It feels awkward and strange seeing people's really real face in person. This idea of one another comes up over 200 times in the New Testament alone. So buckle your seatbelts. It is the beginning of a four-year sermon series. We're not messing around. Or we'll be done by Thanksgiving. Bible stuff. Our passage today is from Romans chapter 12. If you have a smartphone or a tablet with you, you can download the app, bible.com slash app. Some of you might want to grab a hard copy. There should be a Bible in the pew racks in front of you. For those of you who are watching at home, hopefully you have a Bible nearby as well. If you're new to church, Bible can be a little bit intimidating. Thankfully, there's that table of contents. Romans is in the New Testament, which means it happens after the birth, uh, life, and death of Jesus. It's uh, big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. And as you're there, a little bit about the book of Romans because we're starting in chapter 12. The book of Romans is all about how we're saved by faith. To use a fancy theological term, it's about the doctrine of justification. Here's a brief outline of what it looks like. The first four chapters, the Apostle Paul who wrote the book is talking about the righteousness of God, how we receive righteousness through the, the person of Jesus Christ. The second four chapters speak about that hope in God and because of Jesus' work, because he conquered sin, because he lived a perfect life, because he died on the cross, because he rose again, we have hope. Chapters nine through 11 talk about the promises of God. Not only is this good news for all of Israel, says the apostle Paul, it's good news for everybody who believes in the person of Jesus. And that brings us to chapter 12, the family of God because of the hope, because of the promises, because of God's righteousness, what does it look like to be a part of God's family? What is courageous community? For those of you who are note takers, we start with this. It's a personal commitment. This is Romans chapter 12, verse nine. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. The word genuine in some of your translations might be read as sincere, but it's literally unhypocritical. For many of us, though, that word hypocrite strikes a little bit too close to home. Going to church, we've probably heard people say, oh, Christians, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. And it strikes us and we wonder, am I? Are we? With two major elections coming up over the fall, we will hear that word a lot. That candidate is a hypocrite. That person is a hypocrite. The origin of hypocrite is completely different. It really means to be an actor. In the first century, actors would often play numerous roles in the play, and so they would have different masks to represent the role or the person they were playing at that time so that we as an audience would watch and go, oh, that's who they're portraying. And Paul, the author of Romans, is going right to the heart. Don't be fake. Don't put on a mask to impress somebody. Be real, be genuine, be sincere. If you want to be a part of courageous community, then bring your real self to the table. On my internship, I had a watershed moment. It happened nearly 20 years ago. I was in a small town of about 5,000 people, and there were four or five churches in town that all had youth groups, but our youth groups were all quite small. And so once a month, once every two months, we'd get together and we would hang out together so there would be an energy and uh, an excitement in the room as more people were gathered together. As a single guy at the time, I kind of had my eyes out. Who's a good-looking girl from another church? And I met one. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to go over and say hi to her. And I made quite the impression. 
And it turns out her dad was the Pentecostal pastor in town and he heard about this impression that I made on his lovely daughter. It also turns out it was not a good impression. And so a week later, my lead pastor calls me into his office and he said, Dave, we need to talk. I said, oh, what do we need to talk about? And he goes, well, the Pentecostal pastor just called me and it turns out you and his daughter had quite the interaction on Friday night. And I said, I bet we did. And then he said, it wasn't good, Dave. She said to her dad, dad, there's a new intern in town. He's a little bit arrogant. He's a little bit cocky. And I don't know what to make of him. And so my lead pastor asked me a question. He said, Dave, how do you want people to view you? I don't want people to view me as arrogant. I don't want people to think I'm a jerk. I want people to see a true and genuine love that's sincere and honest and heartfelt. And so it was a watershed moment because that day I said, God, I don't want to be this person anymore. And for the next number of years, not just a couple of months, I said, God, regularly, every single day, I want to pray that you would fill me with love, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and that my life would look different It would be a life worth following. It would be a life that is honest. It would be a life that can really engage in a courageous community. Because the truth was, I probably did come across as arrogant. And I didn't want my character to put a lid on my ministry and not create an atmosphere where real life change could take place. You may have heard that old line, if you want to change the world, start by looking in the mirror. But now we have a question in front of us, don't we? If we want our love to be truly genuine, truly sincere, how do we show love to people we really don't like that much? Is it fake to be nice to somebody we find annoying? Is it self-serving to just smile and nod at your coworker who you really don't like or to tell a family member during Thanksgiving, that marshmallow salad, mmm, delicious. It was not. Richard Branson, a billionaire entrepreneur who founded the Virgin Group, was uh, made a little bit famous about 10 years ago by firing one of his employees on the spot. The reason? He was condescending towards the hotel doorman. And he went on the news, and this was fairly big news at the time, and he said, if somebody treats me different than they treat the doorman, he has no place in my company. Love must be sincere but how do we love somebody we really don't like? I think it's important to recognize maturity should not be confused with hypocrisy. Do you want to wake up every morning and go to school? Do you want to wake up every morning and go to the job that you may or may not like, especially on that day? I know I don't. Some days are just hard. But does anyone call you a hypocrite for turning up on the job site when it's a beautiful summer day outside and all you want to do is spend time with friends or family? They don't. They call you mature. As followers of Jesus, we believe that every person who walks on this earth is made in the image of God and deserves to be treated with love and respect. Of course, personalities are going to clash from time to time. Of course, we're going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed and it's just going to be an ornery day. But that doesn't mean we don't love everybody who we meet. It's a mark of Christian maturity. It's a personal commitment to say, I am going to love the person that God places in front of me right now. 
I'm going to love the person that I talk to in the church foyer. I'm going to love my neighbor even when they're partying late at night. I'm even going to love that person at Walmart who's back to school shopping in the express lane with 20 items who pays by change and it's love. Courageous community begins with a personal commitment to love sincerely. But a personal commitment does not a community make. And the Apostle Paul continues on. It goes to a family commitment. This is just verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Many of you will be familiar with the writings of C.S. Lewis. Uh, His books uh, written to children, The Chronicles of Narnia, have been on TV. Maybe you've read Mere Christianity or The Screwtape Letters. He's a well-known author who wrote uh, mostly in the 20th century. Back in, the 19, uh, in 1960, he wrote a book called The Four Loves that examined four different Greek words that were all translated love in English. He starts off by talking about eros. That's the romantic love that uh, a man might feel for a woman. There is agape, which is the unconditional love of God. Third, we have the one that you might be the most familiar with, and it's Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. And then there's probably the word that we're least familiar with, storge, which is an empathetic love, a love that is often found between a child and a parent where they intrinsically belong to one another. And do you know what the Apostle Paul is saying in verse 10? He's saying, I want you to storge one another. I want you to choose to love one another the way a parent chooses to love a child and the way a child chooses to love its parent. I want this love to be so deep and so unbreakable because it is a family love. But that's not all. I want you to storge one another with a Philadelphia love. I want you to have the depth of love that a parent has for a child and the same type of love that a brother has for a brother. I want this bond to be so deep and so great that nothing can break it. Because family relationships are important to us. Even when we or our siblings make a bad life decision, there's still a family bond that is at work. We'll do anything for our family because they're our family and nothing changes that. We don't write them off. We help them time and time and time again. Think of the large family gatherings that might take place at Thanksgiving, for a reunion, at Christmas. It's the family that brings us together. Even though we can be so different from one another. One of you is urban, the other is rural. One of you likes music, the other of you likes the arts, the other of you likes sports, the other has hobbies none of us have even heard of. Some of you vote on one side of the political spectrum, some of you vote on the other side, and yet family brings us together. Storge love is a choice. Unlike Eros, which is a romantic love that we kind of fall into, unlike Philadelphia, which is a brotherly love where we find people with the same types of interests and we just gather together, this type of love is different. Storge love is a choice where we say, I'm going to choose to love the person who's standing right in front of me. And since we belong to one another, I'm going to give you the very best of who I am and you're going to see my warts and I'm going to see your warts. But because of this unbreakable family commitment, we're going to love the person who's standing right in front of us. Think about how different we all are even in this room. You can go ahead, you can look around. People from different backgrounds, 
people from different nationalities, people from different countries, people of different jobs, people of different economic statuses. The only thing that draws all of us together is the person of Jesus Christ. Going back to C.S. Lewis, he says, you know, it's good that dogs and cats should always be brought up together. It broadens their minds. I do acknowledge that some of the challenge this brings up though. In the same way that some people look at God the Father and say, it's hard for me to wrestle with that because my earthly father was not a good man. Some people see church family as difficult because you had a dysfunctional upbringing or a really bad church experience. Those are real and I am not going to discount what you've been through. But do you remember how Paul started this in verse nine? It begins with a personal commitment. I am going to love the person who stands right in front of me because that's the person God has placed in my path at that moment. And it's a family commitment that says, we are going to write a brand new chapter. We are going to show the world what love looks like because it's a choice. And we have an opportunity to write a brand new chapter, a brand new start to the book. There are older men in this congregation who are waiting to mentor younger men, to show them what it means to be a man of God, to show them what it means to treat a woman properly, to show them what it means to work well and if necessary, to barbecue a steak. And there's godly older women who are saying, Dave, we would love to mentor some younger women. Bring them our way. Women who wanna show you what beauty in Christ really looks like. Women who wanna show you what your beauty and your self-worth is in God. Women who are saying, I want you to recognize the world is your oyster. There are groups in our church that are saying, we would love to gather together like freedom session. And if you've had hurt and pain in the past, come and talk to us because we wanna walk with you through that so you can experience healing and freedom on the other side. There's groups like Alpha that are saying, are you exploring Christianity? We wanna give you a safe and welcoming place to do so. And you might say, but Dave, what about my heart? Because you don't know what I've been through and you don't know how hard it's been. That's fair. You can absolutely protect your heart. You can wrap it in bubble wrap. You can put it in a safe. You can bolt that safe to the floor and no one will touch your heart and it will never be hurt again. And it will grow hard and it will be calloused and it will be difficult for anybody to break through. So we have a choice. We can stay away from community or we can deeply engage with it. Going back to this idea of Philadelphia, it's a word that we translate brotherly love, but it literally means from the same womb. There's this beautiful story in John chapter three where Jesus is talking to a Jewish leader about being born again. And the man, understandably confused, says to Jesus, what am I supposed to do? Crawl into my mother's womb? It doesn't work that way. To which Jesus replies, no, Nicodemus, it's about God's kingdom being born in us. Everyone in this room, all of you watching online, every person who believes in Jesus Christ is a brother or a sister, adopted by God and born into an eternal family. We are not like a family. We are a family. Therefore, honor one another above yourselves. I honestly believe the first five minutes after the service are the most important on Sunday mornings. We can come in, we can sing songs, we can give of our offerings to God, we can listen to a spoken word. The first five minutes after the service, incredibly important. Because most of us want to beeline to our friends. 
we're a large church. There's a number of people every single week who are coming into our building for the very first time and they're wondering, how welcoming is this church? How loving is this church? Will this church embrace me, whatever I bring to the table? So the first five minutes after the service, I encourage you not to make a beeline to your friends, but to talk to somebody you haven't talked to before. Ask them about themselves. What brings you to Ellerslie? What keeps you at Ellerslie? Where do you live? What do you do for fun? What sort of things are you involved in here at the church or in the community around you? The next five minutes, go and talk to Kelsey. And if you have kids, say, Kelsey, I am so grateful that God has brought you to Ellerslie. If you don't have kids, thank her for her joy. If you don't know what to say, give her a $5 handshake and say, next coffee's on me, Kelsey. God bless. And then come see me. I'm gonna be standing right beside the inside door. And if you're thinking, Dave, I want to get involved, but I don't know where, man, would I love to talk to you. If you're watching online, you can go to erbc.ca slash connect and fill out a connect card. And even if you're in person, you feel a little more comfortable doing that, somebody on our team will get back to you soon. Let's pick up the pace a little bit. This is verses 11 to 13. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. With three verses like that, it's no wonder some people take years to go through the book of Romans. But I just wanna focus on one idea there. Practice hospitality. The apostle Paul, the author of Romans, has two protégés that we learn about in the New Testament that he's actually written letters to, to Timothy and to Titus. In 1 Timothy chapter three and in Titus chapter one, he gives a list of attributes and characteristics that he looks for in a group of leaders. But there's one part there that's a little bit unique. It almost stands out and he says, leaders should practice hospitality. And I think it's something that we've lost. And I think it's something that we need to regain if we really want to do and see something different in our church. If we want to be a courageous community, if we really want to embrace that radical idea of belonging to one another, we need to take this idea of hospitality much more seriously. Travel in the New Testament during the first century was scary. It was dangerous and most inns were expensive and not terribly safe. So the early believers said, what can we do to show love? Let's open up our doors and welcome travelers, especially those who belong to the family of believers. And listen to this part. It gives them refuge and a safe space to stay for the night. Listen to that again. Hospitality gives refuge and a safe space to stay for the night. I know it's COVID, I get it, I get it, I get it. When do you feel comfortable opening up your homes again? And you might say, Dave, not now, I'm not ready. That's okay. When will you be ready? In six weeks? Christmas time? February? And in the meantime, how can we show hospitality? Does that mean saying, hey, why don't we grab a coffee together? My treat. Sunday after church, hey, let's go out to a restaurant together. I'll pick up the tab so you don't have to worry about it. How can we show the world what hospitality, what grace, what safeness, what love, what sincerity, what genuineness looks like? How are we going to be a community so
so different that when people walk into our doors, they say, this isn't just a nice church. This is a welcoming church. This is a church I want to be a part of. This is a church where life change takes place because they practice hospitality. 14 and following. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. There's a lot to talk about there. But just like in verses 11 to 13, I want to pick up on one idea. It's a verse I think about and dwell on regularly. Will we rejoice with those who rejoice? And will we mourn with those who mourn? This COVID season has been incredibly difficult. Some of us have lost loved ones and we can't even celebrate their lives well because we're not allowed to meet in groups. Slowly things are changing. And truthfully, I think Christians are actually really good at the mourn with those who mourn. I think there's this idea of, you know, somebody's in the hospital, can we bring their spouse or their family some food while this is taking place? Can we babysit their kids? I heard you broke up with that person that you were in a long-term relationship with. How can we love you? I know you're looking for work. I know it's tough. Here's a gift card to Superstore. We want to bless you during this really hard time. What about the other side? Will we truly engage and rejoice with those who rejoice? You might think, Dave, that's pretty easy. I hope so. But if we're single, do we rejoice when our friend gets engaged? If we can't have children, do we still show up on Mother's Day and Father's Day? Do we still celebrate our friends who are able to have kids? If we're struggling at our job and maybe we're underemployed or we just can't make ends meet, do we celebrate when our friend gets a promotion? There's a story I heard, a parable of a congregant walking with his pastor. And the congregant was saying, oh, pastor, I'm so glad that I have you to lead our church. You're kind and you're considerate and I love the messages on Sunday and it's just a wonderful place to be. And the pastor's going, oh, shucks, thanks. And then he says, but how do you feel about your brother's church on the other side of the city that's a lot more successful than you? You see, there's a personal commitment to deeply love no matter what. There's this family commitment that says, I'm going to treat people like sisters, like aunts, like brothers, like fathers, like sons, and I'm going to rejoice with those who rejoice, and I'm going to mourn with those who mourn, and my door's gonna be wide open to visit with everybody. The Apostle Paul wraps up in a unique way. You think that we're gonna continue going on in this passage about love and engagement and what this looks like as a courageous community, and he does. But now he focuses on our enemies. We're gonna go through this really quick. Picking up in 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul here is alluding to both Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the Old Testament law. Courageous community not only 
will this impact how we treat people inside the church, but it will radically impact how we treat people outside the church. If you were unable to join us last week online or listen to our podcast, I highly, highly recommend it. We had Sid Coop come in wrapping up our sermon series on Misquoted, and Sid's topic was God, sex, and sexuality. And I love the way he approached it. He said what we believe as a church and uh, how we view sex and how we view gender, and he was very upfront about that, and that was maybe five minutes of the message. The other half hour says, but how are we going to love deeply? He set it up, courageous community, beautifully. Right now, we are witnessing brutal and horrific acts in Afghanistan. As I wrote part of this message on Friday morning, there were 5,400 Canadians and Americans waiting at the Kabul airport, hoping to get back to North America when the suicide bomber struck the day before. Canadians, Americans, Afghani Christians, terrified of what is to come. And the scriptures say there is a better way to treat our enemies. There is a more glorious way. Here in Canada, we don't fear attacks of that nature, but we're more likely to be marginalized, mocked, or just simply discarded and shoved to the side. But we don't respond with a physical aggression. We respond with an incredible compassion. We seek to be people of influence in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our sports, our hobbies, and when we're at play. We show there is a better way, and it's marked by this personal commitment that I am going to love no matter what, to live out a genuine and sincere love that abhors what is evil and clings to what is good, where we become people of influence so we can go and tell the world, this is who Jesus is. There really is a better way. Where we we feel comfortable, we can say, come to church, check out Alpha. It's a great place to experience what God is all about. Because it's a love that marks courageous community. It's a love that changes the world. And it's a lack of love that breaks down the community and breaks down families. Right from the opening pages of scripture, we see families and communities completely broken down. By the fourth chapter of Genesis, we see Cain killing Abel. And we think, oh, maybe it's just a really bad start. But it only gets worse. Abraham and Lot separate and Lot ends up pursuing the pleasures of the world. Isaac and Ishmael separate because of terrible choices. Sarah gets upset at her servant, Hagar. Esau threatens to kill his brother, Jacob, for stealing his birthright. Rachel and Leah, two sisters, fight over the same man. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And that's just the book of Genesis. I haven't told you about how Aaron, Moses' brother, tries to undermine him. How Abimelech in Judges chapter 9 kills all of his brothers so that he would be king, about how Israel's greatest king, David, is chased out of the palace by his son. Where's the idea of storge? And that deep and intimate relationship between a parent and child, where is Philadelphia and their brotherly love of being born from the same womb? And then Jesus enters the scene. And because God so agapes the world, Because of God's unconditional love, he says, I'm going to send my one and only son down on a rescue mission. I'm going to send him because Jesus has made a personal commitment to live a perfect and holy life, to love everybody that Jesus puts, that God places in front of him. It's because of this family commitment that Jesus looks around and says, brothers and sisters, 
the people who are here who worship my father are my brothers and sisters. And it's because of Jesus' commitment to enemies that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's an invitation to courageous community. It's an invitation to change the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this sermon series. And we look forward to as a church being called to this idea of courageous community, of what it's going to look like and what it means to be deeply committed to one another and to engage in that radical belonging that takes place. And so God, we ask forgiveness for where we have fallen short, where we have not loved the person in front of us, where we have not loved our coworker, we have not loved our family member. And God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would renew our minds. You would soften our hearts. You would open up our homes so that we might show the world what love looks like. That we would be a people of courageous community and that the good news of Jesus would be here in Ellerslie, in South Edmonton, and spread around the world. And we pray this by the power of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.